the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, right here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. We're always so pleased when you join us. Uh, Alan Dempsey, the legendary engineer, uh, he's getting us on the air today, as he has for many years. And uh, Andrew Herdliska does the producing, and in this first segment... Daniel Silliman is with us, news editor for Christianity Today, author of Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith. Daniel, from your home in Johnson City, Tennessee, welcome to Orlando. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Daniel, what's the background on this book? Why was it important for you to write it? Yeah, so um, I started working on it while ago, I think 2009 was when I first started trying to think about bookstores, in particular Christian bookstores, and fiction. And I was trying to, uh, originally just like, man, there's a lot of this stuff, and it seems like if there's, you know, thousands of new titles every year, and some of them sell thousands of copies, that that this is worth um, thinking about and considering and eventually I, I started looking at how does fiction and the fiction market or the book market more broadly, how does that shape um, evangelicalism? How does that hold people together? How does that bring people into conversation? How does that um, frame um, our imaginations as Christians when we think about the question of um, living out our faith? You know, and, and, and what I found, I read so many novels, and what I found is that across genres and across generations, the sort of central question of each of these um, popular evangelical novels is um, something like, what does it mean to live out your faith? Um, Jesus died and rose again. Now it's a Tuesday in 2021. What should I be doing? How should I be feeling? How should I respond? To the to the world around me, so so yeah. So I started just by hanging out in a Christian bookstore and asking what's going on here, and ended up writing a book that that, that really is about American evangelicalism and uh, the shape it has. Daniel, your first <clears throat> chapter, the romance of abundant life. Janet Oakey's love comes softly. Uh, fill us yeah. in on on this opening topic. Yeah, so I looked at five novels. Um, I, I read many novels and then zeroed in on these five. And they're each um, 
they're each novels that sold more than a million copies, so they're quite popular and quite widely read. And then they're each um, novels that mark some transition in the book market, some, some point of change. So Jeanette Oak, uh, she's a Canadian writer, um, a wife of a, a, a pastor, um, um, and she is someone who, this is in the 1970s, she is a mom and a pastor's wife. She loves romance novels, just sort of your normal, uh, you know, she buys them at the grocery store in Calgary, um, romance novels set in castles and stuff. And as some of our older listeners may remember, there's something that happens to romance novels in the 70s, which is that they they start changing. They start getting filled with um, sex and um, sexual violence and... Um, and, and Jeanette Oak becomes pretty uncomfortable with this popular form of fiction. And she also noticed that, you know, these, these romance novels are set in olden times and yet they never have any faith. There's no, there's no religious, um, at life in the characters. And so she writes her own novel that really merges the romantic story and the religious story. So love comes softly. It's about a woman who, who goes through some really hard times and she learns to love again. She learns to trust a man. And at the same time, learns to trust God, that God um, has a wonderful plan for her life. She's part of the what's called the higher life movement, the Keswick theology um, some of it today exists in charismatic circles, which really talks about um, not just that Jesus will save you, but that 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 um, you will have abundant life um, in the here and now. <clears throat> so Jeanette Oak um, is a middle-aged woman who who uh, has always dreamed of being a novelist, but never had the chance. Writes this novel. Um, she happens to find uh, one Christian publisher. Who, who is willing to publish it, and it becomes wildly successful, and convinces kind of all the Christian publishers at this time that uh, that Christian fiction should be a new thing, and that uh, this is an exciting possibility of uh, genre fiction with evangelical themes. My guest, <clears throat> he's in Johnson City, Tennessee, Daniel Silliman, reading evangelicals. Well, we've arrived now at uh, your second topic, spiritual warfare in everyday America. Frank, yeah. Frank, Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness. Tell us more, Dan. Yeah, so Frank Peretti uh, in the 1980s, so about, about almost 10 years later um, after Jeanette Oak, um, he is a um, burnt-out uh, Assemblies of God pastor really struggling, you know, and if he had walked into a Christian bookstore and had wanted to buy a novel, they would have all been novels about how Christianity leads to faith in Jesus, leads to abundant life. But Frank did not feel like he was living abundant life. You know, he was trying to be faithful, but his church had been really hard, and he had eventually felt like he and the congregation needed to part ways, and he was actually working on a in a ski factory making ski equipment out in um, Washington State. And he started writing a novel, um, and he originally called it The Heavenlies. And he wanted to imagine what would it be like if we could see the impact of our prayer 
powers on, you know, what the Bible calls principalities and powers. So it's, um, yeah, a story about demons and how they've taken over a small town, and they're part of this conspiracy. And um, and then the, the Christians who are roused to prayer. It was pretty widely read, widely influential. Um, it it got a lot of people at the time, a lot of Christians at the time, interested in prayer walking and spiritual warfare and kind of thinking about demons. Some people see it as a religious right book, um, because it really says that, like, your faith um, and your will, will shape your understanding of what the truth is, and if your neighbors don't share that faith, then they won't share your understanding of the truth. And so you're necessarily going to come into um, conflict with people, and that living a faithful life is about these kind of cultural conflicts, um, which may involve demonic forces and angelic forces. It definitely involves prayer, um, and it, and it, you know, in a broader way, that faith is a faith is a struggle. Jesus does bring us abundant life, but uh, this life is also full of tears and struggle and. And this novel was was successful enough that it actually jumped out of Christian bookstores. It showed um, Christian publishers that they could produce not just romance novels, but other types, too. Uh, and then it started to be sold occasionally in, like, Walton's books, um, uh, Walden's books in, uh, in malls. Daniel Silliman is our guest. <clears throat> We've got another segment with Daniel. Uh, I just want to remind you, that uh, my latest book is is out. Uh, it's called Revolutionary Leadership, and uh, <clears throat> we take a good look at the Revolutionary War period and who were the key leaders uh, that allowed the United States to come into existence. We do a chapter on each one of those leaders and, uh, and then list uh, leadership lessons we can learn from each one of them. <clears throat> I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, Brian Kilmeade of Fox and Friends wrote the foreword. So <clears throat> when you go up to Amazon uh, to order a copy of Daniel Silliman's book, Reading Evangelicals, How Christian Fiction Shaped a Culture and a Faith, uh, pick up a copy of Revolutionary Leadership as well. I think uh, I think you'll enjoy both. This is the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend on the new AM 990 and FM. the word, and always get to talk to some really interesting people, interesting guests, and we're so honored when when you join us. We'll be back uh, for another segment with Daniel Silliman talking about reading evangelicals. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Daniel Silliman is our guest. We're talking about his book, Reading Evangelicals. We have covered uh, the romance of abundant life. We have covered spiritual warfare in everyday America. Now, uh, Daniel, we've arrived at the rapture dilemma. Tim LaHaye, Jerry Jenkins, left behind. Fill us in. Yeah, Left Behind is such a titanic bestseller in this in this category. It's an apocalyptic novel that tells the story of of the rapture at the the end of time and the rise of the Antichrist. And the and the main characters are the people who um, 
knew enough of Christian end times theology, this particular Christian end times theology, to know the rapture when they saw it, but not enough to have faith in Christ and belief in the Bible and actually be taken up to heaven at the end of time. Um, so, yeah, Tim LaHaye uh, is, a, is a pastor, and he, he's originally writing this as theology, his theology books, and he kind of can't get people to read them, or at least not enough people. And so he starts thinking, well, what if this were a novel? What if this were a story? Maybe that's the way to, to really move people and really grab people. Um, he talks at one point about seeing the movie uh, Ben-Hur and realizing how many more people were attracted to that movie than, you know, would have been a story about the events of, of um, first century uh, Judea. So, yeah, so he contracts with Jerry Jenkins, who is a professional writer, and they churn out this story. They write so fast. Jerry uh, Jenkins apparently wrote 20 to 40 pages a day, which I am envious of. That's just kind of amazing if you've ever tried to write. Um, yeah, it's a really fast-paced story, and it's about the apocalypse. Um, and it's also about... The dilemma, the dilemma of my title, The Rapture Dilemma, is it's about the dilemma of um, what happens when you, as an individual, as a believer, can clearly see God at work in the world, and everyone around you disagrees. That's, of course, the, 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 the problem uh, for all of these characters, that they know it's the rapture, but other people think it's aliens or some weird science experiments or something else. And so the, the book ends up really getting into questions of apologetics, questions of how you believe, and it sells, the whole series ends up selling 65 million copies um, and becomes a touch point. You know, not every reader agreed with it. Not every reader, uh, not even every Christian reader bought into all of the theological arguments, but it created this massive conversation that helped shape um, evangelical ideas and evangelicals taking positions uh, on, on things. And it was sold, uh, I said, each, each book that I write about is also about how the market changed. It's the first, or one of the uh, first really important books sold at Walmart. So it's not just sold occasionally in a tiny shelf at the mall, we're just at the Christian bookstores. It's really about evangelical culture now coming sort of fully into public spaces, and it's stocked at Walmart stores everywhere. Well, it's very, very interesting. My guest, Daniel Silliman, we're talking about reading evangelicals. Let's move to topic four, authenticity, authenticity in Amish bonnets. Beverly Lewis yeah. is the shunning. Uh, what's going on here? Yeah, so also in the 90s, at the same time that Left Behind is is spreading the idea of the apocalypse and asking people to imagine living through the apocalypse, there's another genre that emerges, and this is called Amish Romances. And these are evangelical books written by evangelical people, um, starting with Beverly Lewis, who's actually uh, an Assemblies of God um, pastor's daughter and... Um, and a piano teacher in her spare time, or as her main job, before she becomes a full-time writer. Um, but the the books are about this religious group um, that 
is very conservative and and lives in these strict communities, and they all wear the same clothes, and they drive the horse and buggies, and, you know, if, if any um, of your listeners have ever driven through Pennsylvania, you see Amish country. And so it's an evangelical story set in this kind of space with these characters. And and what what that does is raise questions of what it means to be authentic, to be your true self, and, you know, does coming to faith mean that you should conform and live like your your religious leaders say that you should? Or does it mean you should be more you? You should be more authentic. You should be more uh, exactly who God wanted wanted you to be and not like everyone else. The Amish fiction ends up answering this question in a, in a couple of different ways. Um and I compare this to what's going on with mega churches at that same time. This is also the era where, like, Rick Warren and uh, Saddleback and Willow Creek are promoting authenticity and authentic leadership, and um, talking about maybe conformity isn't the sign of faith. Maybe being more yourself is the sign of a, a relationship with Jesus. These novels are wildly, wildly popular. There's a new um, book in the genre published like every four days, something like that. It might have changed recently. It might be faster now. But when I looked, it was every four days there was a new Amish romance. Um, and there's whole section. There's a whole section of them in any like Barnes and Noble or suburban bookstore. You'll see lots and lots of young women with bonnets. And these are um, these are Christian stories. They're a little bit different than the previous Christian stories, but they're held together by this larger market that shapes the evangelical identity. Daniel Silliman is with us. He's in uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, reading evangelicals. Well, let's get to number five. Amid emerging ambiguities, William Paul Young's The Shack. What's going on here, Daniel? This is a really interesting novel. It's the last one that I look at. It comes out in, in, in 2008, and um, it's interesting, first of all, that because no Christian publisher was interested in it, they all sort of turned it down. And um, William Paul Young, he goes by Paul Young, uh, wrote it wrote it originally um, for his kids. He wrote it as like a Christmas present. He made like five copies, and then he sent it to some friends of his who had an early podcast. They were some. Um, pastors who had a podcast that talked about church life and theology, and and this was actually early enough that they didn't call it podcast. It was just a downloadable file on on the internet, a downloadable audio file. But then he sells two thousand, uh, a thousand copies through them through the podcast, um, and then they rewrite it, the three of them, and they recompose it, and it's then purchased by um, Hatchet, which is um, an international publisher. It's actually originally French, um, and it's the largest publishing house in the world. So it doesn't have any evangelical commitments um, as a publisher, but it does see that there's this big market, and it sees this book as, um, yeah, possibly something that evangelicals would like, that evangelical publishers wouldn't wouldn't um, pick up. So you see in that story that I'm telling um, I talk about emerging ambiguities. Is it evangelical? Where's the line? Who decides? Where are the gatekeepers? That stuff starts to 
fray and fracture in the 2000s. At the same time, the book, The Shack, uh, is the story of a man who's gone through a crisis, and he goes uh, into the woods for the weekend and has an encounter with God, and so he spends kind of like a novel about a retreat, but it's one man, and he spends some time with God the Father, and he spends some time with God the Son, and he spends some time with God the Holy Spirit. Uh, Many people found it quite moving. It talks a lot about abuse and finding healing um, from um, sexual abuse and other types of abuse in your relationship with God. Um, a lot of people also find it pretty disturbing. It, um, you know, talks about the Trinity in ways that are kind of creative and maybe not strictly orthodox. Um, so it created a little bit of controversy, um, which of course also contributed to sales and contributed to, um, where I think we are now, where evangelical as a religious identity can mean a lot of different things, and it can can create a lot of confusion as to whether people feel like they're a part of that or not. And that's the shack comes out in two, came out in two thousand eight. And you have a conclusion, Daniel, <clears throat> and it's the question that remains: What are you writing here? So I wanted to talk about how all of these books present really different ideas of what faith means lived out. If I believe in Jesus, if the most important historical event, I would say, is that Jesus came to earth, lived, died, and defeated death and rose again. And so then that leaves us with this question, well then how is that supposed to affect my life? How is that supposed to shape my, you know, wild, random Tuesday? And I think Many of these novels that I read about have been criticized um, for their answers to that question. People have said that the romance novels focus too much on your own emotions and your own individual relationship to God. And people have said that the spiritual warfare novel focuses too much on conflict and it encourages people to be bad neighbors and, and on and on. And there's lots of, like, I, I think... I'm persuaded by some of them and less by others, but they're like quite legitimate arguments that these different novels have maybe not had the best answers to the question, how should we live if Jesus really died and rose again? But what I want to say is that the question still remains, and and I am interested in being a part of this larger conversation that wrestles with this question, even if I don't agree with all the answers. The question is important, and the answers are important too, but like wrong answers are better than not answering the question. So I think, I think I'm talking about, um, at the end there, this larger evangelical movement, and maybe you believe that some of it has gone wrong at this point or at that point or with this type of ministry or with that kind of public witness. Um, and I'm, I'm open to some of those arguments, but I also think that the conversation is really important because this question that drives us, um, as Christians is so critical. Daniel, tell me what you want us to take from our discussion here. What, what, what do we learn from all this? What do you want us to do? Um, I'd love for us to think more thoughtfully and more carefully about popular culture and Christian culture, 
to me, it's really interesting how things like novels that maybe aren't considered the most serious things, um, they shape our faith. And they shape our faith by speaking to our imagination and by connecting us to other people and putting us in conversation. And if we can um, yeah, pay attention to that and learn to ask questions about that, that can um, give us a better sense of um, our community in the world and uh, how it's shaped by these, um, by these fictions and by the book markets. What's next for you, Daniel? You have another project in your pipeline? Yeah, well, of course, I'm the news editor at Fishing Today, so I am always working on the next magazine and more news from Fishing Today. And I am also working on another book. I'm working on a religious biography of Richard Nixon, also with Erdman's. They have a Religious Lives series, and I am writing about the former president, Richard Nixon. Very interesting. Tell me a little more about that series, Daniel. What, what What's included? Oh, man, they have so many great books in that series. Um, going back to, like, a really great one with um, Jonathan Edwards, A Life, and George Whitfield, some of those early um, American evangelicals who influenced so many things, um, into more recent ones that just came out with one about uh, Dwight Eisenhower, um, which I haven't read yet, but looks quite, quite good. Uh, and then the most recent one that I have read is about Charles Lindbergh, um, of course, who's, who's not a Christian, um, but is kind of spiritual but not religious, and deals with a lot of temptations towards uh, Nazism and white supremacy and, and um, a sort of spiritualized Nazism, which is quite, quite fascinating. Um, it's a great, diverse series. Um, it, it really it really pushes us to think about how um, religion is so important in our, in our history. My guest has been Daniel Silliman. The book, Reading Evangelicals. We've got more after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay tuned here to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Daniel Silliman, our guest in that first segment from his home in Johnson City, Tennessee. Well, we stay in Tennessee. Uh, We're now in Clarksville, Tennessee. We found Mike Burnett, uh, the lead pastor of LifePoint Church in Clarksville. Uh, His book, Parable Church, How the Teaching of Jesus shape the culture of our faith. Mike, welcome to Orlando. How are you? Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm doing great. In fact, uh, to your point a second ago, I actually grew up in Johnson City, Tennessee, so great to be on the air following somebody from my hometown. Oh, good for you. Good for you. Mike, what's the background of this book? Sure. Um, I've been pastoring LifePoint Church since the summer of 2010. I took over a church that was about to foreclose. On its property, 52 voting members, uh, really, really terrible situation. My wife and I at 30 just knew this was great, a great opportunity for us and put the Lord on it. Eight years later, we were listed the fastest-growing church in America by Outreach Magazine. So mm. quite a different story from where it started in 2010 to 2018. As a result of that, um, we got a lot of calls and 
you know, text, emails, calls about what did we do? What's our secret? How do we grow this church? And I would always give credit to Jesus saying, I didn't grow this church. God grows this church here. And people would say, yeah, 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 I know the Bible, but what'd you do? And I would say, man, I don't really know how to answer that question. You know, I would struggle with uh, church, people wanting church growth. And I started asking questions about the culture of their church. How does it feel to be at your church? You know, we all kind of do, we all run the same play at the, in the church world, right? We do weekend services, worship, preaching, kids ministry, small groups, some kind of assimilation process, you know, a membership class or whatever. And then we offer um, opportunities to volunteer and serve. And I think, I think that's the play of Scripture. I think that's what we see throughout the book of Acts. I think it's what we see all throughout the New Testament. But what stands apart, I think, in growing in healthy churches, vibrant churches, is there's a, there's a unique culture um, that, that is inviting that people want to be a part of. And so I started really looking at the Gospels of Jesus, saying, Lord, help, help me articulate a healthy culture to people that are wanting to see their church growing and thriving and, and reaching people that are lost, reaching people far from God. So I started really digging into three of the parables that had spoken to me really since before I was even in pastoral ministry when I was in seminary. The parable of the prodigal son is a story that, I mean, just absolutely changed my life. The, the parable of the, the sower and the parable of the talents, those became the three real foci of the book, Parable Church. But then I started studying all the parables of Jesus, and I realized Jesus, in 37 different stories, is introducing this other way of life in other culture of kingdom living. He, he'd start all of his parables with the kingdom of God is like this. And then he would tell these stories, you know, the unforgiving, the parable of the unforgiving servant or the parable of the, the, the wheat and the tares, all these different stories. And every one of them is ultimately positive. Every one of them is inviting. Every parable of Jesus introduces a way of living in the kingdom of God that is absolutely amazing. If you go study the Gospels, you see over and over again, people love being around Jesus, especially lost people. And I just started wrestling with the question, and why don't lost people love being around Jesus' church? So I said, well, what if we started shaping church culture? Because that's what we can help as pastors. You know, I can't change the Bible. I'm not going to change the playbook, but I can shape the culture, make it inviting, make it forgiving, make it generous. I can lead that. So I started evaluating the parable. What if we started leading churches that feel like Jesus is the senior pastor? And he taught us that in the parables. Well, let's dive in. Part one of your book, uh, The Parable of the Two Sons, Lost Things Matter, The Father's Economy, Throw a Party. Uh, fill us in on part one. So the uh, parable of the two sons, you know, uh, most people call it the parable of the prodigal son. That's not what Jesus called it. That's what editors have named it. But the parable of the two sons comes out of this time in Luke 15 when the religious people are furious with Jesus because he is eating and doing life with sinners, what they call sinners. They say they can't believe that Jesus is hanging out with sinners and having meals with them. And I think churches should do that too. It's not that we're allowing those people to influence the church, but that we're making room for people like that in our lives, right, as Christians, to influence them unto the gospel. So his response was not to defend what he did. He gives these three parables, the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and then the parable of the two sons. So a father has two boys, and both of them live on the land. Both of them are in the presence of the father. And the younger one comes to the father saying, I want to have my inheritance now. I don't want to do life with you anymore. I just want what's mine, and I want to leave. He's entitled to one-third of the father's property and assets. 
because of just kind of the way they divvied up property there. The older son would have gotten two double portion of inheritance, and the younger son would have gotten a, a single portion, a one-third. So the father lets him leave and doesn't argue, doesn't contest. And, I, and, and what I say in the book is that's the heart that God the Father has for people in this world. Like, he loves them. He wants people to be in the, on the field, on the farm, in the, in the home of the Father. But he'll allow people to leave and spend their life any way they want. So the younger son, uh, Jesus goes on to say, the younger son, um, not many days later, later, leaves, takes all of his possessions, and then he squanders everything on wild living or expensive living. And that's where we get the word prodigal. It's just he blew his money on fun living, right? So um, then as the son works through his own issues, it says in verse, I think, 17, it says the son came to himself, right? He, he says, I've come to myself. I have to get back to the father's house. I'm not, but I'm going to tell him. And he works on this little three-point message. He says, I'm not worthy to be a son. I've sinned against heaven and against my father. And let me just get a job and work my way back onto the farm. And that's where a lot of people are. And I think in our world, they're coming to themselves with a, a, a realization that God matters. I want to get back to the father's house. So I'm going to go to church this weekend. And they have this attitude that I, I'm not worthy to be there. Um, I've sinned a lot, and if I can just work, do something to earn my way back. So the, the, the part that really strikes me about this whole parable, it says, while the son was making his way back and was still far away, the father saw him. And so that to me shows, the, this again, what Jesus is trying to reveal in these parables is the, this way of the kingdom, right? So the father will let you leave, but he's always looking for you to come back. And he says, while the son was still afar off, the father saw him coming. And so the father runs to the son. He doesn't stand on his front porch with his hands on his hips going, you better come down here and apologize to me and make restitution. And that's what a lot of church folks do, right? We, we want to stand at the front door and, and ask people, what, what do you think you're doing here? And that's kind of the older brother in the parable. He, who do you think you are? You know, you've blown everything on prostitutes and wild living and accuses them of sin. But the father, man, he runs to that boy. He, he, dead sprint, runs across the property to go catch that kid uh, before he gets to him and embraces and kisses. And while the son starts to give him his three-part message, you know, I've sinned against heaven and earth. I'm not worthy to be your son. Let me get a job. The father cuts him off. And he's like, no, we're throwing a party. You're alive. You're here. That is the win. And I just, I challenge, you know, in the book as pastors and, and Christians, do we create church environments where we're looking for the missing, where we're looking for lost people, and that we embrace them and love them and make space for them and celebrate that they're in the Father's house. Now, here's what, here's what that doesn't mean. We don't accept people staying as they are, right? We always say anybody's welcome to our church to have their lives transformed by Jesus. But, man, it's, the win is that they're there. And do we have churches that make room for the missing, make room for lost people, celebrate when lost people come and give their lives to Jesus and, and get in the place and and so it's a, it's a culture of invitation, a culture of grace and forgiveness and mercy. It's also, you know, the Father says, you're here. When he puts that robe on him, when he puts that ring on him, he's, he's giving that son familial identity. You're, you're part of this family again. You belong here. We're calling you home and family. And that would begin the journey of restoration. I'd love to go read the, the next chapter of that parable, if there was one, where the boy's like totally restored, he's repentant, and all of that, but we don't see that in the parable. Anyway, so that's the parable of the two sons, this idea that, you know, do we want to be a church of loving fathers? Or the second son is the other lost son, actually. It's the older brother who 
accused the brother of sin, who said, what do you think you're doing here? And then he threw a fit. You know, he, he gripes to the dad saying, you know, I've, I've been here faithful, loyal. You've never even thrown me a, given me a goat to have a party with my friends. And I have this kind of tension between loving fathers and older brothers in our churches. Unfortunately, oftentimes, we've got these younger sons coming home to the father, and they're getting met at the door by this older brother spirit. Who do you think you are? What do you think you're doing here? How dare you come in here dressed like that or dating like that? Or we know your story. And many of our folks are coming to the church meeting older brothers instead of loving fathers. So I, I challenge Christians, you know, do you want to be a church of loving fathers or older brothers? And hopefully Jesus, what he's trying to communicate in the parable, is that in his kingdom we need to have the heart of the loving father where lost things matter to us, where we operate from a, a, an economy of grace, not shame and love, and we celebrate when lost people come into the house of God to meet the Father. My guest is Mike Burnett, lead pastor of Life Point Church in Clarksville, Tennessee. Mike, let's get to part two of your book, The Parable of the Sower, Seeds, Soil, and Such, Turning Over the Soil, Seeds Among Stones and Thorns. Fill us in. Sure. So um, the, the Parable of the Sower is a, it's a beautiful leadership parable, honestly. And um, when, when I came to this church, we had 52 voting members. My first Sunday as pastor, 85 people showed up. And we were $15,000 behind per month, um, two and a half million in debt. We had a 12,000, 12, maybe 10,000 square foot building and a 24 acre field that we could not afford to mow the grass. I mean, it was just, it was really not like from business sense, it was not a great opportunity. However, I knew it was God's will. I knew it was the Lord's will. And this is the, the, the church that the Lord had given us to, to pastor and what we found over the years is God will continuously bring all types of different people into this church, right? And we didn't, we didn't want to have a homogenous church where everyone here believes, looks, and acts the exact same. What happens is God would give us different types of people that would come here, some that are very churchy, some that are anti-church, but they've come because their spouse drugged them to church, they're hard-hearted, or... They're just living with the cares of the world. And the parable of the sower, Jesus, is, he, he kind of gives these three characters, you know, the sower of the seed or the farmer, the seed itself, and then the soil types. And the, the sower is going to be the preacher. That's what he, This is one of the parables that he actually defines. It's the preacher of the Word of God. The seed is the Word itself. And those two things never change, right? But the variable in that parable is soil types. And you've got some seed falling on the the sidewalk, some on shallow or rocky ground, some on thorny ground, and then some on good soil. And I think what happens a lot of times in the church world, we think, well, I'm just going to focus on the good soil hearts. I'm just going to focus on the people whose heart is receptive and open. And then we're going to say, man, you know, for especially in the, like, depending on your tribe, I'm, I lean more Arminian. Um, so I believe, I believe God wants to save all people, you know, but a lot of us become Calvinists when it comes to this kind of stuff. Well, you know, God will bring the good soil people here and all the rest, you know, they'll just stay out of the church. But I think God wants to bring all four of those soil types into our church. We've got hard-hearted people that are coming, and we got to decide, are we going to be a church that does the hard work of bust the ground so that, you know, under every sidewalk is good soil. You just have to get a jackhammer out and then haul off all the concrete and do the work to get to the good soil. So it's really hard to plant crops under a sidewalk, but it can be done. 
But he goes, he, he says the parable of the, uh, in the, in the parable, he says the soil that's like the thorny ground. These are people that are just, man, they, they've had fruit in their life with the things of God, but the cares of the world choke that out. So do we take time to remove thorns from people's lives and disciple them in a way that, that lets them become a good soiled heart again? And then the stony ground people, they spring up quickly. There may be younger converts who give their lives to Christ, go all in, but then when the pressure of life hits again, they have a family member get sick or a spouse leave them or just financial woes. They go, man, I tried that Christianity thing and it didn't work. Are we willing to do the work of discipleship to, to get the rocks moved out to, to, to reveal that good soil so that the seed of the Word of God would land on them? In, in the town I'm in, in Clarksville, uh, we're a military town, but we're also uh, an agricultural community. And I've hung out with a lot of farmers on their farms, and what's interesting is the farmer is always not paid unless there's a crop. So the farmer, the sower, is free. Seed is actually very cheap. Where we live, you can you can sow an entire acre of corn for very little money. But the cost, that the highest cost that farmers incur is in the machinery to do the dirt work. My guest is Mike Burnett. We'll continue with Mike. We need to take a break here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, This is the new AM 990 at FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. More with Mike Burnett. Stay with us. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Pastor Mike Burnett is with us, lead pastor of LifePoint Church in Clarksville, Tennessee, we're talking about his book, Parable Church, How the Teachings of Jesus Shaped the Culture of Our Faith. Mike, we need to move on to part three. It's the parable of the talents. It's all his. What's yours is not mine. Don't just grow. Grow faithful. Uh, tell us more. Sure. Uh, just just you know, closing that last thought, I think yes. a lot of times we need to do as much work as we can to get the ground of the hearts of people cultivated to receive the Word of God. And that's really what the focus is on that parable of the sower. Uh, yeah, in the parable of the talents, I, I just articulate that, man, everything that that uh, we have in ministry especially, and, and pastors struggle a lot with, well, if I had that bigger church, if I had those resources, if I had more people, you know, in the parable of the talents, the master owns it all, and he gives out to each according to their ability, right? So he gives to one servant five talents, one, two, one, and the last person he gives one talent. All those talents, all that money was the master's to begin with. When he comes back to collect, he collects it all. So it's all turned back in as well. And I think it's good for Christians to remember that perspective, and pastors especially. This is not our church. This is not my ministry. These are not my people. This is God's church, God's work. My job is to be a good steward of that. And the first two guys had, a, had the right attitude. Master, you gave me this. I worked hard to produce this, and they just produced back, and they were fruitful. Um, but what was rewarded was not their fruitfulness, but their faithfulness, right? I think a lot of times in the church world, too, we get caught up in who's fruitful and how to become more fruitful, how to have growth. And all of that is God's problem. Fruitfulness is God's problem. Our job is to be faithful. The third guy comes to Jesus, calls him, calls to, comes to the master and says, Master, and then he reveals his heart. I knew you'd be hard, reaping where you didn't sow, working where you, or receiving where you did no work. And he said, I was afraid of you. A lot of times we have this bad attitude of, of maybe misaligned expectations or um, misguided expectations of what we should have by this season of our lives. But in the parable of the talents, the bottom line I try to communicate there 
is, is our responsibility is to be faithful to the things God has entrusted to us. And he, what he's entrusted to us is what he believes we're capable of, whether it's a radio show or a sports team or, um, you know, a church or a family, you know, the family side that you have, trusting that the Lord knows what he's entrusted to you and then stewarding that in a way that's faithful. Our reward at the end of that parable is well done, good, and faithful, not fruitful. In fact, I've, I've done some teachings on this, too, and you can give your pushback or thoughts to it if you'd like. Um, I think we've idolized fruitfulness over faithfulness, and we need to get back to that place of what does it look like to be a faithful steward of what God has given us. So that's really kind of the impetus of that last parable of the parable of the uh, talents. What do you want people to take from your book, Mike, and, and from our chat? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me on this radio program. I, I have a history of radio uh, back when I first started ministry. I was four years on a radio show, so it's kind of cool to be back on the radio again with you, and thank you. Uh, my, my biggest hope in writing the book, uh, I, the opening line of the book, Jesus never told us how to do church. And a lot of times I think we focus too much on the how we do it, who does it better, who does it right. I guess I would want people to have a takeaway of what does it look like to pastor and serve and lead and pray for my church to become the kind of church Jesus actually imagined in these teachings of the parables. The the subtitle of my book is currently How the Teachings of Jesus Shape the Culture of Our Faith. The original subtitle I suggested was How to Lead a Church that Jesus Would Actually Pastor. <laughs> and so I guess my hope is that people could come away from this book with just some ideas, not of how to do church better, but how to be the body of Christ that he imagined we should be. Mike, tell us um, more about Life Point Church in Clarksville, Tennessee. Sure. Uh, Life Point Church was started in 2005 as a church plant in the Assembly of the God denomination. And five years later, the senior pastor transitioned out. And the church had gone through some really difficult transition there, and the church split went down to like 20 or 30 people on a weekend. My wife and I came in 2010. The Lord has been just re- renovating, reviving this church ever since. And um, we've really focused on just a few things. We, you know, as a, as a missionary to Clarksville, I feel like it's important that this church reflect its community well. So we have the, we, we want to reflect the diversity of our city. So we're about 35% non-white. And our town and our church is about that, the same thing. We, we have, we're in a military town. And uh, so we have a strong military presence in our church without being overly patriotic necessarily, but we are very masculine and we care about the military. We care about what's happening through our military forces. Um, we're agricultural. We, we, we just want to reflect our community well, but we're still growing. We're multi-site. We have a strong online presence at lifepointchurch.tv. Our, our website really hosts all the communication stuff that we have, online sermons. We have location in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, location south of Nashville and Smyrna, Tennessee, and we're looking to partner with other churches in our denomination to grow in multi-site. And we're currently running five or six services on the weekend in our town and continuing to grow uh, even beyond the buildings that we're in now. So it's a growing church. We do four things. Really is what we focus on, weekend services, small groups, discipleship and fellowship and small groups. And then we help assimilate people to to the church and membership and baptism and all that kind of stuff. And then having people serve on teams and volunteer and serving others is a big part of what we do. Plus we try to be very generous giving, uh, last year we gave for the first time a million dollars to missions, um, in one year, which was incredible to do during a COVID year, a pandemic year, we were able to give such significant money to missions, which has been so fun. What, uh, causes church splits? You just mentioned that. 
Well, it's it's pretty varied in the nuancing of it, actually, but I think the major cause of church splits uh, has to do with power struggles. Uh, that could be power struggles over theology, power struggles over, um, you know, praxis, ecclesi- ecclesiastical praxis, how, what programming we're going to do. In fact, I've, I've made this statement a few times over the years. I said, people have never left our church over theology. They've left over power. They want to be in charge. But, you know, I think a church that's submitted to Christ and submitted to the Word of God will have healthy power balance and structural organizational leadership. And the church, you know, having good, healthy communication, transparency in all things will help a church stay healthy and, and together and being on mission. You know, I, most churches that have these massive splits have lost sight of the mission of God to reach people far from Christ, to disciple Christians, and they've shifted their focus on what it means to, to win the power struggles. So I, I always grieve when I think of church splits, and, and I followed a church split here. It's just hard to recover, and it's hard to lead through. But I think keeping the vision on the main thing, keeping your vision on the mission of God and reaching people far from God and preaching the Word, and preaching the Word with boldness, it's hard to split a church when it's on mission and the Holy Spirit's breathing on it. Let's uh, let's have one more topic, Mike. Mich- missionaries. Why does a person uh, want to come, become a missionary? Are, are, they, are they called? Uh, how does it work? Yeah, I think in the Scripture you have, in the New Testament, you have these um, offices of ministry where people feel an evangelistic orientation to another place, right? Paul was often uh, reoriented in his geographical location. He didn't just base out of Jerusalem. That was more what Peter did. So he had more of an apostolic pastoral leadership bend. Uh, the Apostle Peter did, where he just stayed put there with James and the other leaders. Paul had this attitude, man, I'm going to go as many places as I possibly can or go to another place and, and plant churches and do the work of an evangelist and missions. And so I, I think if somebody has a stirring God puts a place on your heart or a, a people group on your heart, really, more than even a place. You know, that's the kind of thing you need to be looking for and asking God uh, if he's sending you to another place to do the work of ministry. I, on the other side of that, too, though, I think even if God's calling you to go somewhere else, we always need to be missional and evangelistic right where we are. I had a pastor tell me when I just started ministry, I was probably 21 years old, he said, bloom where you're planting. Never Never overlook the place you are because you can't wait to get to the next thing. Always bloom exactly where you're planted. And, and Christians should live, according to Matthew 28, we should live on mission all the time with the Great Commission. So I think missions, it's an all-the-time life of a Christian. It's not just something we do overseas or under a bridge in a major metropolitan area. Missions is something that we do as Christians because we believe in the mission of God and we live on mission with God. Mike Burnett, author of Parable Church has been our guest. I I just want to remind you that uh, my latest book is out. It's called Revolutionary Leadership, and um, I think you'll enjoy it. We we look at the 25 key leaders of the Revolutionary War period, do a chapter on each one with leadership lessons that we can take from uh, these uh, these people, some very famous, some not known so much, but... uh, I think you'll you'll like it. So when you order Parable Church, go get a copy of Revolutionary Leadership as well. You'll, uh, you'll I think you'll have a couple of good reads. Well, folks, we got to wrap up after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM nine ninety and FM one hundred one point five. The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM nine ninety and FM one hundred one point five. The Word. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Saturday Power Hour. Uh, I'm your host, Pat Williams, and we do it every weekend, of course. Daniel Silliman in the first segment, and then Mike Burnett came along in that second segment. Uh, I do want to tell you that uh, we are trying uh, to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. Orlando is now the 17th largest media market in North America and the largest media market that doesn't have a big league ball club. And so our time has come. We are working away at it. We need your help. Go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and just check in. Tell us that you're interested, think it's a good idea, season tickets perhaps, if this all works. OrlandoDreamers.com, and have a wonderful week ahead. And we'll be back next weekend for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And stay plugged in, of course, to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time, where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.